0: Again by asking you a question: what is the meaning of life? The story is told that when compiling his dictionary, the young Noah Webster traveled to the Himalayas, where he climbed to the cave of reputedly the world's wisest man. O great sage, he said, tell me the meaning of life. The sage sat Noah at his feet and with great solemnity um, commenced unfolding life's meaning. Noah took Copious notes. When finished, impressed of course with himself and Noah's rapt attention, the sage placed a hand on the young man's shoulder and said, do you have any other questions, my son? Noah flipped a page in his notebook and said, you wouldn't happen to know the meaning of the word lift, would you? Okay, that's two for two. I'm going <laughs> to cross that off for the third service. What is, the, what is the meaning of life? What, what is this all about? These are the questions of philosophers, theologians, and bartenders. Cons- consider these responses. I hope life isn't a big joke because I don't get it. Or, uh, my life has a superb cast, but I can't figure out the plot. Or... You fall out of your mother's womb, you crawl across the open country under fire and drop into your grave. That's encouraging. (laughs) Even better, we are born wet, naked, and hungry, then things get worse. (laughs) How about life is like a beautiful melody, only the lyrics are messed up? The tragedy of life is not that man loses, but that he almost wins. Charlotte Brown says, in the book of life, the answers aren't in the back. (laughs) And then this one, I I gave my life to learning how to live. Now that I have it all organized, it's just about over. (laughs) The universe is like a safe to which there is a combination, but the combination is locked up in the safe. (laughs) How about this one? Life is a series of family photos in which you keep moving to the rear until finally you're a a portrait in the background. That's a little stunning. Einstein said, human beings, vegetables, or cosmic dust. We all dance to a mysterious tune intoned in the distance by an invisible piper. Is that it? That work for you. What is the meaning of life? Here's one more for you to consider. You cannot connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. This is deep. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down, and it has made all the difference in my life. Steve Jobs in his address to the 2005 graduating class at Stanford University. I share that last one because it's been all over the internet, all over the news uh, this week with the passing of Steve Jobs. If you don't know who he was, Jobs has been the brains behind Apple Computer and all their successes: the iMac, the iPod, iTunes, the iPhone, and the iPad, to name a few. I have nothing against Steve or those products. In fact, I I own one. Several of you do, I, I, I'm sure. In fact, if you're getting ready to go from the uh, iPhone four to five, I'll take your four, or maybe iPad two, I'll take your one. Certainly don't want to do any disrespect to his memory, but in the midst of all of the adulations rightly, rightly given him this week, he's one of the greatest innovators of all time, over 300 patents to his name. He belongs right up there with Thomas Edison. I mean, he's changed the way that we live our lives in the midst of all of those adulations is the fact that Steve Jobs was a committed Buddhist. He became so walking through India early in life. This particular religion and, and, and consequent philosophy, he says, directed his life. Here's my question. In the midst of all that, well, all that I stuff, is that it? Did, did jo- Steve jobs find the meaning of life in connecting dots in karma. Mahatma Gandhi, for example, fifteen years before his death wrote these words, I must tell you in all humility that Hinduism as I know it entirely satisfies my soul and fills my whole being. He seems to have found life's meaning. But, but, but then later Right just before his death, he wrote, my days are numbered, I am not likely to live very long, perhaps a year, a little more. For the first time in fifty years, I find myself in the slew of despond, all about me is darkness, I am praying for light. Is that it? You're born, life is hard, then you die? What is the meaning of life? What is this all about? Most of you know the story of French philosopher René Descartes trying to discover life's meaning. He shut himself up in a French oven for 30 days. In a French oven for 30 days, after which he emerged with this well known philosophy cogito ergo sum I think, therefore I am. 30 days. I think I could have come up with that in about 30 minutes. With the introduction of the iPod, Newsweek came up with this cover, iPod, Therefore I Am. It's cute. Is that it? Where are we going? Carl Sandburg, the Pulitzer Prize-winning American author and poet, seemed fascinated with that particular question, where are we going? At one point he wrote, I'm an idealist. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm on my way. He was born in Illinois, spent most of his adult life in, in Chicago. You might be interested to know that he spent the last 22 years of his life uh, in Flat Rock, North Carolina, just south of Hendersonville with his prize-winning Milk Goats. Many of you studied Sandberg's works in high school, a collection of free verse, which basically means it's poetry that doesn't rhyme. He actually won two Pulitzer Prizes, one in 1940, another in fifty one. His first major collection of poems was published in 1916 called Chicago Poems. Among that collection was a piece entitled The Limited, and he was seeking to answer the question, where are we going? It goes like this. I'm riding on the Limited Express, one of the crack trains of the nation, hurtling across the prairie in blue haze and dark air go fifteen, all steel coaches holding a thousand people. All the coaches shall be scrap and rust, and all the men and women laughing, and the diners and sleepers shall pass to ashes. I ask the man in the smoker where he is going, and he answers, Omaha. That's Is that it? Is that it? I think Sandberg was hoping for a little different answer to the question. Frankly, do I. Please, somebody tell me we're not all headed to Omaha. At some point, this is the question of every thinking person. What is the meaning of life? Is this all there is? Where are we going? These questions actually begin... Early in life, it begins with the why question. You remember when your kids were little, they asked you a question, they followed that up with the inevitable response, why? You see, in those little forming bodies and brains and developing, listen, developing self-awareness, they were beginning to ask the ultimate questions of life. Assuming you gave them an answer, not just because I said so, came back the next why, why? why? Eventually, where did you end up with the big why? Is there an answer to the ultimate questions of life? No, I'm not feeling particularly philosophical this morning. I'm simply asking some questions. Are there answers to the questions that everyone eventually asks? Without sounding arrogant, I think there are. In fact, maybe you're here this morning and you can remember pondering these questions in your past. Maybe they kept you awake at night. Maybe they kept you awake last night. Maybe that's why you're here today, desperately hoping for answers. Maybe, even as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're wondering about life's ultimate questions. And again, without wanting to sound arrogant, I believe that Christianity, the the Bible, gives answers to the biggest questions of life. What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? Where are we going? Why? The ultimate answer to all those questions can actually be found throughout the Scripture, but very specifically and directly in the book that we begin to study today. I'm simply today going to introduce you to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It is an incredible book. One author calls it one of the most significant documents ever written. It's unbelievable. And as I began reading the uh, stuff about Ephesians, began reading Ephesians, I discovered that the phrase in Christ or in him or something like that appears thirty-eight times in the book. Six chapters thirty-eight times in Christ, And therein, I believe, lies the key not only to this book, but I think it's the key to life. See, I found the theme of Ephesians, and again, I want to suggest it's the theme of life and eternity, can be found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Look at it with me. Ephesians 1, verse 9 says, God made known to us the mystery of His will. This is what it's about according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of all the times. That is, now listen, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. I know that sounds like a bunch of words piled up on one another, a bit confusing. We're going to look at it a little bit later, next few weeks. But, but I want to draw your attention to the last phrase, verse 10, That is, Paul is going to tell us what he's saying in all those words piled up. He tells us what this is all about. In fact, this is suitable for all time. I want to suggest that this is the meaning of life and eternity, the ultimate answer to every why question. That is, here it is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and on the earth. One author says it this way. Now this is, put your thinking caps on, but now now listen. Verse 9 and 10, the stress is placed on the one in whom God's overarching purposes for the whole of the created order are included. This is what it's all about. The emphasis is now on a universe that is centered and reunited in Christ. The mystery which God has graciously made known refers to the summing up and bringing together of the fragmented and alienated elements of the universe in Christ as the focal point. All things, everything, the answer to every question is to be summed up in God's anointed one and presented, listen, as a coherent totality in Him. Life seems confusing, seems like a melody, and the lyrics are messed up. Everything can be found in Christ. Totality. I know that's deeply philosophical, but it's good. And if you like pictures a little bit better, I want you to look at the cover of your bulletins this morning. I'm going to put it up on the screen. I think Steve Colley, our communications director, did a fantastic job capturing the essence, the theme of the book. Notice, you see the outline of the cross? Because the cross is the apex of all history, the cross of Jesus Christ. Is what it's all about. Why? Well, why is the cross what it's all about? And this is where we typically get off track. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, that's simple. That's to save me from my sin so that I could have forgiveness and spend eternity, and I could spend eternity with him. You see, the cross is all about me, to which I say, Really? Is it? You see, I believe that is a penultimate answer. It's not the ultimate answer. Look back at the picture. All things in heaven, plus all things on earth, equal, are summed up in Christ. We find the ultimate answer to the why question, the purpose and meaning of life's question in this. The sum of all things is Christ. That's why, that's why we'll see, beginning next week, as Paul talks about our... See, we think it's the cross and everything is all about me and about my salvation, and we're going to see next week, as we begin talking about Paul talking about my salvation in verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1, that it is ultimately, my salvation is ultimately not about me, it's about Him. He says things like this. This is is one sentence, verses 3 to 14. It's going to take us like months to get through it, but verses 3 to 14, one sentence uh, in the Greek. Now listen, it says this, he predestined, oh, there you go, and some of you just derailed, Right? That is that word. You know, I, don't, I knew you were going to get to Ephesians 1 and talk about that stuff. Listen, don't derail. He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Here's the reason. Here's the purpose. Here's the answer to the question. To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why you're saved. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Not enough. Verse 10, so that all things will be summed up in Christ. Not enough. Verse 12, we're still in one sentence. To the end, that, here's the purpose that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Not enough. He's not done. Verse 14, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. That's you, that's me, that's my salvation. To the praise of his glory. In the end. In the end, it is all about the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. Any answer that stops short of Jesus is not the ultimate answer. The ultimate answer, listen to me, the ultimate answer that you have to every why question is the glory of Jesus Christ so that everything will be summed up in Him. Several years ago, Rick Warren, pastor of Settled Community Church in Southern California wrote a book that has sold tens of millions of copies, I'm not, frankly, uh, sure about the rest of the book, but it begins with these poignant words, it's not about you." you. You can stop right there. He got that right. It's not about us. The universe, may come as a shock, does not revolve around me. It's all about Christ. Westminster Shorter Catechism. Ask the question this way What is the chief end? What is this all about? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man, here's the answer, is to glorify God and to joy him forever. It's all about him. I sometimes say it this way, there are two immutable laws in the universe that you must remember to get along in life. Here they are. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you are not Him. Enough of my philosophical ramblings. Let me introduce to you the book uh, by reading the first two verses of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Told you the theme of the book. Now let me share with you the author, the recipients and and the greeting. Starting with the author of the book. As you You may know in the letter-writing convention of that day, you typically began by identifying yourself as the writer, then you identified the recipients, then you followed all of that up with a greeting and usually a thanksgiving. The thanksgiving actually comes a little bit later in chapter 1. So the author of this letter identifies himself right off the bat, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What you may not know is that the author of this letter has been one of the most hotly contested topics for over 200 years now. Yeah, I know that the writer identifies himself as the Apostle Paul. Yeah, I know that he names himself again in chapter 3 when he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of. Christ Jesus. Yeah, 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 I know that for the first 1,800 years of church history, it was universally held that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. I know that stuff. Uh, for example, it was universally held by the early church fathers that Paul wrote this book. Many of them would say something like this, as the apostle Paul said, and then go on to quote um, Ephesians. In, in fact, this particular book by the church fathers is the first book to actually be called Scripture. The the church fathers include names like Clement of uh, Rome around 95 A.D., almost a contemporary of of Paul, Ignatius, Hermas, Polycarp, Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus, Tertullian, etc., ad nauseum. Uh, But but here's my question. I mean, what did they know? I mean, come on. They just lived about the time or right after Paul wrote or someone wrote this letter and circulated it. That would kind of be like me saying um, that I know who wrote Hamlet. And you go, well, wait a minute, we, you, we know who wrote Hamlet. It was William Shakespeare. He, he said he did. And his contemporaries said he did. And my English teacher said he did. Don't, listen, don't confuse me with the facts. Just, be, just because Paul said he wrote it, just because his contemporaries said he wrote it, just because 1800 years of church history said he wrote it, and just because your pastors said he wrote it, don't confuse me with facts. You see, there are lots of significant problems with Paul writing Ephesians. First, a bunch of German higher critics who, by the way, don't even accept the Bible as the inerrant Word of God said he probably didn't write it. Why? Well, because that's what higher critics do. (laughs) You see, they gave a few flimsy reasons. The real author the real, not Paul, the real author says in verse 15 of chapter 1 that he had heard of their faith. Well, I mean, come on, what does that mean? The Apostle Paul started the church. He spent almost three years there. He didn't need to hear about their faith. He had seen their faith. Never, ne- never mind that he'd been gone for a few years now, and he probably meant that he heard, he, he continued to hear about their faith in Jesus. Don't, so what? Don't confuse me with facts. Uh, the, 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 the letter also, it just seems too, in, too formal too sterile uh, for a guy who knew the church in Ephesus. I mean, he spent a lot of time there. Did, did, you, did you know, um, for example, that there is not a, not a single personal greeting in the book? Not, not one. I mean, did he know these guys? I mean, we just finished the book of Romans, for those of you here, and, he gre- and Paul was never even in Rome, and he, he greeted 26 people by name. So, so what's the deal here? Yes, it's true that like half of Paul's letters don't contain any personal greetings, but don't confuse me with the facts. Uh, did you know that there are lots of words that, that Paul uses in Ephesians, or this author uses in Ephesians, that Paul doesn't use anywhere else? There are a full 41 words in Ephesians that, that don't appear in, in any of other, uh, Paul's other letters. Kind of like Galatians, which nobody Questions the authorship of Galatians, and there are 35 words in that book th- that he doesn't use anywhere else. But hey, who's counting? Don't confuse me with facts. On and on, the arguments go that make absolutely no sense. They say that Paul's, Paul writes about things he didn't cover in his other books. So? I mean, that's why we have. Thirteen letters written by Paul so that we have a well-rounded theology and teaching. Yes, there are some some new and different teachings on familiar truths. By the way, you'll remember this is one of the reasons that we're going through Paul's letters in the order that he wrote them, to follow his life and ministry as recorded in the book of Acts. I mean, we know, for example, that he founded the church in Ephesus as a prominent port city uh, in the Roman… Um, uh, it was the Roman cap- uh, capital of, the, of, the, uh, of Asia Minor, and we know that he founded at the end of his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Ephesus was, was a very large city. It was third, only behind Rome and Alexandria at the time. Uh, uh, we, we know that, that in Acts chapter 19, during his third missionary journey, he spent over two years in Ephesus… In fact, his ministry was so effective uh, in Ephesus uh, that he caused real problems for a cult there, uh, the cult of Diana or or Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians. See, there was a huge temple to to Diana there located outside the city walls. It was huge, like the size of a football field. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There were lots of silversmiths that made their living by selling little idols uh, of Diana, but, but because of the gospel that Paul, Paul brought, people weren't buying the idols anymore, so there ended up being this big riot, and Paul had to leave the city. He, he left there and went to Corinth, where he stayed for four months, and he wrote the book of, of, of Romans. And you remember that at the end of the book of Romans, he said he was on his way to Jerusalem to deliver an offering there. In fact, he, sets, he signs off a of Romans, gets on a ship heads to Jerusalem, stops in Miletus, among other places, and calls for the Ephesian elders to come and and meet with Him. That's in Acts chapter 20. Then He goes on to Jerusalem, delivers the offering, and then He's promptly arrested, presumably for bringing a Gentile into the temple courts. Well, the the rest of the book of Acts tells us how He spent some time in in jail in Jerusalem, but but then a a plot to assassinate Him was uncovered, so they transferred Him to, to Caesarea, where He spent a couple of years. He got tired of that. So, he appealed his case to, to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And so, they transferred him again, this time to, to Rome. Uh, you may, may remember that it was on his way to Rome that he was in that famous shipwreck. You can read about that in Acts 27. But, but finally, when he gets to Rome, he spends two years there from about 60 to 62 A.D. And it was while he was well i'll say imprisoned he was actually under under house arrest there that he wrote the so-called prison epistles and there are four of them ephesians philippians colossians and philemon in fact if you compare ephesians colossians and philemon you'll find that they were likely written about the same time and all delivered um, by a guy named tychicus but, but, but that's a little bit of the history but back to authorship i mean if okay if paul did not I know it says it did, but if Paul didn't write Ephesians, who actually wrote it? Aha, someone claiming to be Paul. It's called uh, pseudonymity. That that is, um, someone claiming to be someone more famous uh, writing the book. It's kind of like a ghostwriter, I guess. It's said that this was a very common practice during New Testament times, and It was. But the problems I have with that are are, are manifold, but let me suggest just a couple. First, the letter says it was written by Paul. If that is a lie, if that's false, how can you trust anything that's in the rest of the letter? Not only that, consider. Paul says later in the book that Tychicus, who's delivering the letter, is going to tell you about what's going on in my life. And see, the people who say Paul didn't wrote it say, actually, somebody wrote it after Paul died. And then he writes, and, and Tychicus is going to tell you what's going on in my life and Paul's life. So, what's Tychicus going to do? Show up and say, well, since Paul's dead, let me tell you what's going on. He's kind of lying underground and remaining very still. <laughs> I mean, what? Um, second, trust me, trust me when I say, Then lots of reading on this, the pseudonymous writings, while they were common back then… The, the early church, if it, um, there, there's no evidence, not a shred of evidence, that, they, that these kinds of writings were received by the church. In fact, the evidence shows that the early church, if they knew that it was a pseudonymous piece, someone claiming to be someone else, they rejected it outright. They got rid of it. The point is, the early church didn't know it was pseudonymous, that is, not written by Paul. Uh, and it wasn't until a bunch of guys were sitting around trying to come up with something in the 1800s who decided they knew more than the early church. One other quick point. I have a commentary on the book of Ephesians that is almost 900 pages long. Can you imagine how long we're going to be in this book? <laughs> 900 pages, and, and the writer is my kind of guy. His name is Dr. Harold Honer. He's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. I say he's my kind of guy because he likes to count. I mean, the, the introduction, over 100 pages, uh, uh, he, there are numbers all over the place. He, he counts the number of words that there are, 2,200. Uh, I mean, uh, how many um, uh, 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 vocabulary words, 560. He gives me all of those things that I really like. And in one place, Again, and in his over 100 pages of introduction to the book of Ephesians, he quotes a liberal scholar named Brown as saying this, a fair estimate might be, and he's quoting Brown now, a fair estimate that it might be that at the present moment, 80% of critical scholarship holds that Paul did not write Ephesians. And so Dr. Honer immediately thought, hmm, is that right? And so then he did a little investigation, and for the next 10 pages in the book, he has a chart. Well, first he points out that before 1800, everybody said Paul wrote Ephesians. But then he said, 80%? Let's check, the, let's check the numbers. And for the last 200 years, he listed 279 scholars over the past 200 years, and he totals them, and it is nowhere near 80%. It's not even half of 80%. It's 39% of nitwits that think that Paul didn't write the book of Ephesians. That The point of all of that is this. Don't believe all of that liberal garbage that you hear. Listen, almost anybody can make up statistics to support their position. After the first service, someone came up to me and gave me something, a a quote from Mark Twain that says, there are three kinds of lies. Lies, darn lies, only he didn't say darn, and statistics. Don't listen to that stuff. Paul is the writer. He's the apostle of Jesus Christ. He was called and commissioned with a message by Christ to the Gentiles. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. Notice Paul did not assume the position. The, he did not take on the authority as his own. It was by the will of God. Which brings us very quickly, and I'm almost out of time, so I'm going to kick it up a notch. Um, the Recipients. We looked at the author, now let's look at recipients, guess what? It's going to come as a bit of a shock to you, but this is also highly contested. Look at it with me. To the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Your Bible may have a footnote by the words, at Ephesus, and if you read the note, it will tell you that the words, at Ephesus, are not in the oldest reliable and available manuscripts. In fact, it's either three or five, depending on what you count as reliable not in the oldest manuscripts. That is true. However, to that, let me say a couple of very quick things. First, there are tons of other old, reliable manuscripts that have the words in Ephesus in them. Second, many conservative scholars believe that this Ephesians is what is called a circular letter. That is, it was expected that this letter be taken to a number of churches house churches in Ephesus, and the outlying area. Remember that Paul had been in Ephesus for about three years. He no doubt started churches of which we have no record um, in the outlying areas around Ephesus. That's what he did. And it is surmised that it was expected that this letter be read there. Again, most scholars agree it was a circular letter. that There were copies maybe that did not have the name in Ephesus um, uh, in it but it was certainly written to Ephesus. Now, Paul calls them saints. That means holy ones. Now, now by that, he didn't mean that he was writing to a special, reserved, really spiritual group of people at Ephesus. The, The truth is, he considered every believer a saint. Now I know that there's the big church out there um, says that only a certain people reach sainthood, and that's usually after you die. That's not in not in the Bible. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a saint. People are saints by their calling by God to be His people, set apart for His purposes. The Israelites were called. That's the old the Old Testament. People of God, we're called a holy nation, a people belonging to God, set apart for Him. Today, you are saints. You don't even have to wait to die. You are saints, made so by the work of Christ on your behalf. So, you can call me St. Andrews. (laughs) Last Monday, I was driving, I think I was in, I don't remember exactly where it was. It was in Columbia, South Carolina, I think. I was driving there, and I saw a street sign that said St. Andrew's Road. I, like, I was tempted. <laughs> but, but I'm a Christian, and, uh, but I was tempted just to get that. You know, if you've been up to my office there, there's a little hallway that goes back. I was going to put it right above there, you know. <laughs> okay, my wife wouldn't let me stop. So, Not only that, you are saints. You are saint fill in the blank. Not only that, Paul says they are faithful in Christ Jesus, which simply means they have evidenced faith in Jesus Christ. They are Christians. They are followers of Christ. They have faith in Christ. Then in the typical letter-writing convention of the day, he greets them, verse 2. Back then, when you wrote a letter, uh, the greeting would say something like this, usually. Kyrene. Kyrene. That simply means um, Paul to you, or Scott to, to you, greetings. That's what Kyrene means. Well, Paul, as was typical in most of his letters, used a play on words, rearranged a few letters to say, not Kyrene, but Keris. Grace to you. We are people of God's ongoing grace. And then he added the traditional Hebrew greeting and peace, shalom, God's God's peace to, to you. Notice he says that peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because Paul always places the Father and the Son on the same level. Notice finally the centrality of Christ in these two verses. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. They, are, they have exercised faith in Christ Jesus And peace and uh, grace and peace come from Jesus Christ, which brings us full circle to where we began. What is the meaning of life? What is the ultimate answer to every question? The answer is the summing up of all things in Jesus Christ things in the heavens and things on the earth. It is all about Him, for Him, and to Him. You see, and I I close with with these thoughts. Most of Paul's letters are what are called occasional letters. That doesn't mean that he wrote them on occasion. What that meant is that there was an occasion that precipitated his writing. He wrote for a specific purpose. Usually, there was some reason that prompted him to write. For example, Romans. He was planning to take the gospel west, ultimately to Spain, and he was interested in moving his base of operations from uh, Antioch uh, in the east to Rome in the West to be able to go on in to Spain. He was interested in receiving help from the Roman Christians, but remember he had never been there. So he wanted to encourage them with his gospel, write a letter explaining it so they would know who he was, that he was... what he believed in, and that he was orthodox. This was his purpose. When he wrote 1 Corinthians, he had to address a number of problems and divisions in the church and answer some of their questions. When he wrote uh, the Galatians, it's because they were in danger of being sucked in by the Judaizers. We'll find that when he wrote Colossians, it was because there was an early heresy that was arising called Gnosticism that he needed to deal with. The point is, there were occasions or reasons which called for Paul to write most of his letters except Ephesians. There does not appear to be any pressing reason to write. There were no divisions that he addresses, no problems, no heresies, no false teachers, no instructions on how to run a church as he does in the pastoral epistles. This is what it looks like. It looks like he just kind of sits back, picks up the pen, and writes. Yeah, he was imprisoned in Rome. He was under house arrest. Again, no pressing reason to write. So as he writes, he just lets his mind write that which was most important to him, and his mind could not help but go to the the centrality and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Because when you have time to stop and think and to seek the answers to the ultimate questions of life, it is all about summing up everything in the heavens and on the earth in Christ. He's the answer. Let's stand for prayer.